Hello, everyone, and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Epicenter. Um, this will be the first episode with both co-hosts on, uh, Trey Goff and Max Medina. And today, for our first guest, we'll be interviewing Eric Brickman, who is the president and CEO of the Prospera Group. Now, full disclosure, Eric is mine and Max's boss, but don't worry, that doesn't mean we're going to be asking him any easy questions. Um, Eric has a pretty diverse background, which is part of the reason we're interviewing him for the Epicenter. He was born in Venezuela um, before going to Military Academy in Virginia. From there, he went to college at Babson College, where he studied entrepreneurship. Um, he moved on from Babson to work in a diverse array of fields, first investment banking in the U.S., and then some management consulting um, over in London, across the pond. He then moved on from the corporate world to try his hand at more um, entrepreneurial endeavors, first as uh, the CFO of a family office in Panama, where he co-led the creation of a number of business units before moving on to co-found Compara Mejor, which is a financial inclusion enterprise uh, in Colombia. So uh, from there, he moved on to found New Way Capital and then the Honduras Prospera LLC and the entire Prospera project, which is aimed at creating prosperity for Hondurans at home. And with that, Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you, Thank you Trey and Max. I'm really excited to, uh, to see this podcast get started. Awesome, we appreciate it, Eric. All right. First question up for you, Eric. You have an American name, and yet you seem to have some sort of a Latin accent. To be frank, this really surprised me the first time I met you because I saw your name, saw your face, and then met you, and I was like, wait, this guy, he has an accent? Where's, what's the deal with this? <laughs> so what, what, what's your story, kind of? Where, where are you from, and how did you end up starting Prospera? Besides the cliff notes I just gave, I'd like to know the real story of how you got to where you are now. Well, uh, so there's a story behind the name in and of itself. Um, but the story about me more broadly is that I was born and raised in Venezuela, uh, obviously Latin America. I was raised in Spanish. That was my, is my native tongue. Um, and uh, Venezuela, as you know, it's a country that has always had a history of, let's say, less than ideal socioeconomic distribution of well-being, wealth, and opportunities. Um, mm. has only gotten worse in the last 20 years, but it was certainly the case during my early age. And, uh, and unavoidably or fortunately, however you want to look at it, uh, it shaped my outlook about the way the world works and what's its injustices and its opportunities. And that created a, a foundation of sorts through which I started to, you know, see the rest of my life and what I wanted to do. Um, and one of the things that I felt very compelled and pulled to want to do is make a difference. Uh, you know, have a world around me that was uh, primarily and predominantly filled with flourishing. You know, happiness, love, uh, well-being, and uh, material um, resources. Uh, with regards to the name, um, I was born with my father's last name, or I was given my father's last name, which is in fact Briseño. Uh, however, I created my family name with my wife uh, shortly after we got married. And we were thinking about what we stood for as individuals, what we wanted our union to stand for, and the family that we were building. Uh, a bit unusual, I suppose, at least nowadays. Uh, it, it was quite common, uh, especially for migrants going into the U.S. and in other places from faraway places where, whether it was German names that were hard to pronounce in English. Um, but for us, it was really about 
signaling and catalyzing a new beginning. Uh, hopefully the seeds of a legacy that would be very much determined by us under our terms, and not just the way it was, right? I mean, that was just the way it was and you got to accept it. And maybe this is something about me, I'm not sure, but I think it, I think that not just willing to accept the world as is, but daring to thinking of something better and actually working to make it happen. I think that's a very valuable thing for most people to do. And in my world, I mean, it shows up from everything in my name to what Prospera is all about, which is about creating a world where everyone flourishes. I absolutely love that story, Eric. Um, thank you. And it is maybe the most emblematic thing of your personality and kind of the, your mental models of the world that I've ever heard because you more than anyone else I know, having spent a lot of time with you, um, seem to both enjoy and revel in coming up with like new solutions and new creative pathways to solve problems that I would have never in a million years thought of. So I love it. I, that did uh, generate a follow-up question for me though. Feel free to not share this if you want, but what's your family crest? Surely if you made a name, you have a cool family crest. <laughs> Uh, well, <clears throat> we don't yet have a finalized uh, family crest. And the reason being is that Colleen and I wanted our kids to be part of that process. And uh, our oldest child is only six years old. Having said that, just this last couple of weeks <clears throat> during my vacation, I gave my son his first, I would say, meaningful project that required sustained hard work for him to complete it. And, and it was what I think will be an important building block to an eventual family crest. And, um, and just briefly, what I want you to visualize, it was a carpentry job that we were doing. We were building a picnic table for the family. And his job was to cut a particular piece of it. And, uh, and the output ended up being a triangle, right? A triangle. And uh, we co-created that that was the Bremen Triangle of Success because I wanted him to have something visual and tangible uh, to start looking up to what are our family values. And so we, that triangle of success has three sides, uh, a base, which is passion, which I think, you know, we think that whatever you do should be passionate about that fuels everything else. Another side is hard work. You can be passionate, but if you don't work hard, it's just a dream. And the third side is perseverance. You know, it's not about short sprints of hard work. It's about sustained hard work, again, fueled by passion. Triangle has three corners and they all point to a focused sharp point. And that's very emblematic of, you know, personally what I'm realizing is most important in life, which is focus and focus appears three times. So it's like really important. It's yes, passion, focus, hard work, focus, perseverance, focus. And then on the backside of the triangle, it's disciplined thought and action you know, because underneath all this, and it's not necessarily visible to the outside, you got to have discipline, thought and action. Otherwise, you might be directing your passion and hard work and perseverance at something that's just kind of sporadic and not well directed. And on the surface, there's love. Because in the end, you know, if you do it with love, almost everything else finds its proper place. So that I mean, I think this is going to be an important building block, maybe of a family crest, I'm not sure but certainly part of what my son and I have begun to co-create for our family going forward. Definitely. Awesome. I, I think that, I think that one of the things that you and I share a lot is the importance of love and how the love can change the world. And thinking about that, I, one of the things that I was very impressed when I met you 
is about your leadership and your dreams. One of the things that you share from the beginning of the things and one of the things that you had uh, in your thoughts from a long time ago is why is, a, why is poverty in the world? So I would like to ask you, is Prospera is a solution for puberty or what is Prospera in your own words? Yes, uh, well, I think the name kind of gives it away. As I mentioned earlier, I was born and raised in Venezuela where poverty was all around me. And uh, I did start thinking about the problem of poverty and therefore trying to find a solution to poverty. And uh, I sort of at some point realized that I was asking the wrong question. I was trying to solve the wrong problem. Not that poverty is not something to be accepted, it isn't, but it is also something that has kind of always been the human condition for thousands of years until relatively recently, like, you know, measured by hundreds of years. And uh, what changed was that as a civilized society, humans started to create institutions and standards which lay foundations that enable coordinated action across discrete groups, sometimes locally based, sometimes across the world, but that ultimately enable the generation of prosperity, you know, material wealth, right? By inventing, creating, exchanging value for value. And so all those things is actually what solves poverty, but not by thinking about how do you get rid of poverty, but rather how do you catalyze prosperity? And so when I started thinking about this, and I think the primary trigger that totally changed my mind was while well, I was at Babson College and I was studying uh, about entrepreneurship and what it was and how it worked and you know economic theory and wealth creation. And I got that there was a key distinction between just assuming that material wealth was there and then finding better ways to distribute it you know, so that those that didn't have enough had more and realizing that that's called redistribution and it's got a fundamental flaw, which is it kind of assumes that material wealth is there. And that is a completely baseless assumption. That's not been the case ever in history of humankind. Material wealth is not just there. It needs to be created by concerted effort, a lot of mental effort through coordinated action of humans, not just some being, not like the air or animals, like humans thinking and collaborating creates wealth. That's step one. How that wealth gets distributed matters, but anything that starts assuming wealth is there and you're going to forcefully redistribute it to the hands of those that need it most, it's dead on day one because you, you fail to realize that it first has to be created. So Prosper is about creating the conditions for wealth to be created maximally and in the best distributed fashion which in my mind has to do with merit and hard work. And that is a decentralized process that nobody really has the capacity nor the moral authority to by finger point to who deserves more. Each individual creates based on his or her efforts what they deserve. And so Prosper is about creating the conditions for anybody without 
preference to the family you're born into or the relationships you develop or, you know, and especially not how much physical force you're willing to employ to extract by force value from others. So if you level the playing field and you create those basic foundations, institutional and otherwise, so that anybody who works hard can prosper, that's what prosper is all about. I will shamelessly admit it is uh, answers like that that make me so excited to work with you, Eric. Um, <laughs> however, oftentimes we've, we've heard many people uh, in the past, especially in recent decades, who sound make similar noises, who talk about similar things, build these grand ornate castles in the sky and fail along the way to remember that the whole purpose was to also try to build buildings on the ground and to actually have a tangible, meaningful impact on the lived experience of real humans. So what makes Prospera different from those um, sky castle constructors? What makes Prospera actually able to get this done um, where so many others have failed? Well, sometimes the answer is and what's the hardest thing to do. And I think, I think that that plays a role here because the hardest thing that, that we've had to do in order to get this far, and we're still very much in the early stages, right, in a grand scheme of things, but the hardest thing has been to stay grounded on what works as opposed to like in what works in the world as it is today. Basically, a certain health, healthy dosage of pragmatism and deep grounding on reality, not on just a fantasy world of how we wish things were. It's important to be detached from how the way things are so as to imagine the way they should be. But if you stay in that fantasy world, you're just, you know, writing a, a novel. Uh, a fiction novel and that's fine i mean like i enjoy reading fiction novels and you know it's, it's, it's entertaining it's inspiring i have been deeply inspired by many thought leaders living and dead that have envisioned a world of utopia it's great but it doesn't change things in a tangible sense so it, it's it's about staying grounded in reality trey and it's you know internally and you've been a big advocate of this it's like maya right most advanced yet you know, acceptable in the world as this, because, you know, we're, we're, we're after creating something big by measured, measured by the number of people that get positively impacted. You cannot do that without a large enough common agreement by those who want to participate and those who are necessary to enable it or at least not stop it. So shared agreement is key to what we're doing. It's kind of this, it's kind of like this, invisible ingredient that sometimes people who think about utopia miss and that is it has to be agreeable to like the world as is largely or else you're just in the world of fighting another revolution and imposing by force the idea you think it's better which in our world the moment you have to force people to accept a better idea you're, you kind of miss the point you know if it's a better idea it should be adopted by choice and therefore has to be agreeable and, um, you know, and so anyways, that's why we use Maya as an organizing principle to test just how far we should push because we do want progress. We are very progressive in that way. We want progress, but up until the point where it's still acceptable. Beyond that, we're just in the world of fantasy. So I would say that's probably single-handedly 
the hardest thing we've had to do, because obviously it's exciting to think of a world unlimited and not restricted by reality. It's hard to do, but it's the most essential thing to do. I love it, Eric. I love it. As you, as you well know, um, that made me realize, uh, and a fairly important follow-up question, um, that may seem obvious, but we haven't actually gotten to, which is what the heck is prosper and what are we building? And I don't mean it in the more esoteric sense that Max asked it earlier, but like we've talked a lot about prosperity and institutions already and creating wealth and alleviating poverty and whatever. Um, how are we actually doing that? What are we doing? Are we building a town? Are we, uh, creating a jobs program? Are we funding businesses and subsidizing businesses to move to Honduras? Like what the heck are we? Well, so it's, it's, it's a, it's an innovative business model. Okay. It's first of all, Prospera Honduras Prospera LLC is a legal entity first and foremost. It is a for-profit legal entity with shareholders, investors, employees, stakeholders. So in a way, that's what it is. But what is special about it is its unique business model, which in our white paper we have discussed, and we believe it's an innovative, kind of created for the first time business model, which we refer to as a socioeconomic development enterprise. Okay, And, and in a way, it's a for-profit enterprise, which seeks to generate wealth for itself and its shareholders directly as a result of maximizing generalized prosperity within a given targeted territory. Okay. So this is very important. This is notice how I said generalized prosperity. Okay. Versus a transactional business model where I'll sell you a widget, you pay for that widget, and then, you know, my revenues are higher than, my, than the aggregate of cost and expenses. That model, which is great, you know, it's the traditional corporate enterprise model, has one flaw, which is it, it rewards the externalization of certain costs, okay? And that's where a lot of the issues with, you know, let's say pollution or anyways, you know, a lot of these evils that people generally associate with capitalism comes from a slight flaw of sorts, which is you are rewarded by externalizing certain costs. Um, and, and I don't know that that's like a fundamental flaw that you can never fix. I don't think, I, I don't think the answer is to, you know, move away from shareholder capitalism or to somehow come up with a whole different model. No, it's just the way it is. But what was missing, I think it's the business model we have, invented and created, which is one that has the opposite incentive. Still, however, in a for-profit approach, because that is how you more powerfully align both the principled and moral incentives of people to do good things generally, and that's phenomenal, and it's a very powerful motivator, but combined it with the material desire and need to generate wealth and accumulate wealth, right? And, and so in this case, you combine the two in a perfectly aligned structure. So a socioeconomic development enterprise, as Prospera is structured to be, uh, seeking to generalize prosperity as its mechanism by which to generate and, and internalize wealth, manifests itself in the world as creating spa spaces, 
physical spaces, you know, where the maximum number of human beings can be maximally flourishing, right? And, and over time, based on everything that we know about how humans have evolved, that is likely to end up looking like a city, okay? Why? Because cities seem to, as I said, be the thing that or the societal structure that humans as a being find most optimal to exchange ideas, to exchange values. And it makes sense. I mean, you know, there is, there is, an, there is an economy of scale value. There is a network effect value from more people being closer together. You know, like the way you create wealth is by ideas being perfected and then implemented in reality. And all that benefits from coordination, which in turn benefits from proximity, which in turn benefits from, you know, construction costs being low, which benefits from high density. I mean, like it, 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 it has evolved naturally, but it's important to distinguish because a lot of efforts out there are like, okay, we're building a city. Well, it's, you know, a city will emerge, but to say you're building a city, it's like to focus on the hardware. We're creating centers of prosperity, okay? And in order for, for that to exist, it needs a physical reality, hardware, if you will, and software, you know, like the rules and the institutions, right? Those two things are essential, but it is also essential the, the users of that, you know, the, if you will, wealth creators, employers with, you know, pr- suppliers of labor and ideas. And, um, you know, it's often said cities are marketplaces for jobs when it's all said and done. Um, so that's kind of the most simplistic way of thinking how you generate prosperity is, well, you, you create the conditions for high paying and, uh, abundant jobs to be concentrated somewhere physically and at, you know, and available to a particular population. And, and so in our first iteration in the modern era, this is where our partnership with the government of Honduras comes from. So essentially, you know, we looked at a bunch of countries around the world with this general framework of wanting to create a socioeconomic development enterprise. And we needed, amongst other things, enabling legislation. And amongst all the various things, you know, a space, people, you know, enabling conditions from a physical reality, the most scarce was enabling legislation. Okay. And therefore that was the most important one, at least in the beginning. And that's how we ended up in Honduras because for all the flaws that every government has around the world, and Honduras is no different, uh, the Honduran government, through its elected officials in the National Congress, and a handful of what I think are basically heroes of our time, untold, unsung heroes, developed a legal framework that was built upon the observed successes of a number of societies and cultures from around the world namely Asia, China, and uh, Hong Kong, sorry, and, and um, Singapore, and the Middle East, and Dubai, th- there were success cases where something interesting happened. Uh, you know, small plots of land in the grand scheme of things, in relatively short amount of time, were transformed, it would seem, like the skyline was transformed. Cities emerged seemingly out of nowhere, literally out of deserts, populations that were impoverished, more poor than what Honduras is today in 15, 20 years became the most prosperous in the world. And like these things that have been happening over the last 70, 80, 50 years 
were observable. And so this group of reformers traveled the world, went, understood what was happening, essentialized the key components. And what they found is that if you're able to, to, to create solid foundations of institutions and proper rules and standards that have been perfected over time, even if you do that in a small physical location, the, the, the impact can be very significant, not only for those within the special jurisdiction, but in a broader sense with very positive externalities. And in the case of China, very substantial externalities where the proven case of one successful, what we call center of prosperity gets replicated and multiplied. And so, you know, so Honduras got this, they created enabling legislation, which is what now, you know, is the Zeta framework. And, uh, and, and so we, you know, we, we responded to the call of the Honduran people through its government to find partners to help develop this into a network of centers of prosperity within the nation of Honduras for the benefit of the people of Honduras. And that's, that's why we're there. We are actively employed at building the physical reality, the first stages of the physical reality of the first center of prosperity. After having spent three years developing the intangible dimensions of the institutions that um, establish and protect human rights, property rights that enable a clear, fair, and familiar legal environment through a Honduran adoption of international common law, where disputes can be resolved fairly and expeditiously, um, etc. Right. So all that intangible, let's call it software, has taken quite a while to do and curate. And I think it's best in world. Um, at least that's what third-party experts like Ernst and Young say when they've analyzed this as an external party. And now we're starting to build a physical reality, like the basic buildings, while we are actively onboarding the two sides of the critical marketplace for jobs to be created, employers and employees. And so as I sit here now, there are employers engaged in active pursuit of Honduran employees to be set up within our jurisdiction. And that is the kernel of the first phase of what we hope will not only evolve into a very successful center in its own right on the island of Roatan, uh, but equally important, the first of a number of these centers around the country. The second one planned for a much bigger city uh, on the mainland of La Ceiba, which together we hope will replicate the effect that Hong Kong had for its people and then how it inspired a replication on the mainland through Shenzhen and then from there to the rest of the mainland. Um, so that's a long answer. apologize, but that's, that's basically exactly what we're engaged upon right now. Thank you for that, Eric. That was uh, made it much more clear exactly what it is we're up to. And just to give some meat to the bones of some of the examples you just gave there. Um, <clears throat> Shenzhen, China, for example, was the first special economic zone China created in 1979. And when it was first created, Shenzhen was nothing more than a sleepy little fishing village of roughly 300,000 people, a per capita annual income of less than $500. I think it was like 250, if I remember correctly. And if you, it became a special economic zone, a hub of prosperity, similar to what we are building in Honduras. Fast forward to 2015, not even 30 years later, 20, 25 years later. And Shenzhen is one of the most prosperous places, not just in China, but in the world. At the same time that the population grew from 300,000 to 12.5 million, 
Shenzhen's per capita personal income jumped from roughly $250 a year to over $46,000. That, that sort of explosion of both population and prosperity is just an absolutely wonderful and beautiful concept for, and, and, and kind of image for innovation and human prosperity around the world. And it has made Shenzhen the Silicon Valley of the East. And it has made Shenzhen the place where over 80% of the world's electronics hardware are manufactured and produced. And it has made Shenzhen the place with the most startups per capita of anywhere in East Asia, second only to Singapore. So I just wanted to put some meat on the bones of some of the examples that Eric was giving here. Sure, and just let me add a layer of something that's almost unbelievable, that the, the analogous comparison between Hong Kong, Shenzhen, and Roatan and La Ceiba. Uh, the island of Hong Kong is 32, uh, 32 square miles. And sorry, the island of Hong Kong is 31 square miles. The island of Roatan is 32 square miles. Okay. The island of Hong Kong had a British, um, you know, it was a British colony. The island of Roatan was a British colony. Okay. Um, Shenzhen had 300,000 residents when it, you know, before it was, had its first special economic zone. La Ceiba has about 300,000 residents. Shenzhen was across the water from Hong Kong. La Ceiba is across the water from Hong Kong, right? Um, with proximity for trade to be enabled. These are somewhat superficial comparisons, but they actually matter a lot because proximity and initially uh, significant enough population matter. And, and so what we're looking to replicate is that Roatan is very well positioned to, like Hong Kong, be more of a service economy, okay? It's got an international airport. It's got a you know, predominantly an English-speaking population. Uh, so it's well-suited to be an international base for services and very important services like education, financial, you know, industries and insurance, um, you know, and a number of others. But those two are key. And in Hong Kong, they catalyzed not just the development of the island as a high-value center of prosperity, but then they were, it was a bridge for capital and talent to develop on the mainland of China, starting with Shenzhen, which is exactly what we're hoping to catalyze and what we're seeing starting in the relationship between Roatan and La Ceiba, right? And then La Ceiba already has a population of 300,000, but the whole country of Honduras has over 9 million people. So there's plenty of talent there available to grow into. And what's very um, sad in some ways, but a huge opportunity in another way, is that every single year, at least 100,000, and by some measures last year in the aggregate in the Northern Triangle, almost 600,000, individual human beings migrate out of Honduras in pursuit of a better life, which if they survive the trip, and most of them fortunately do, and make it into a better governed jurisdiction like the United States, those people within a year and a half to two years are multiplying levels of income that they're able to generate by a factor of 10. It's the highest increase in, in, in a delta basis from any other country in the region, the Northern Triangle in particular. So it's very exciting in a way because while those people are leaving right now out of desperation, they could instead relocate within their same country, close to their families, and then instead of exporting talent what we are in effect doing in partnership with the people of Honduras and its government is helping adopt those best practices that enable the same human beings to flourish away from their country, 
but for them to flourish within the country. Um, and, you know, Roatan, for all of its wonderful attributes, simply does not have the capacity to scale up at the speed and in the magnitude that being able to lift a significant portion of the Honduran population requires. And therefore, the La Ceiba hub is very significant because it does have space to grow, right? And, and whether it stays small and then you have multiple hubs around the country or the La Ceiba becomes effectively the Shenzhen, which could you know, house millions of Hondurans, is yet to be seen. The market will certainly play a role in determining that, but at least it has the powerful potential to do something quite similar to what happened in China, but in Honduras and in Central America by extension. I, I would like to, 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 to say that these special economic zones are a topic that is very new in Honduras. And through that, I will, uh, this, this concept is a little bit controversial in all the region. With that being the case, I want to actually ask you some of the most common objections to what we are doing and how you do respond to them. Do that work for you? Definitely, sure. So the first thing that it's very common to, to hear is that our sedes are inconstitutional or illegal? Uh, yes, I've heard that. Um, and I think it comes largely from uh, some confusion. There was an earlier version of the ZL law called the, the REDs, R-E-Ds. And, um, and for a number of reasons, that was indeed deemed unconstitutional by the Supreme Court of Honduras. Um, it wasn't illegal because it was enacted by the National Congress, but you know, in the governmental structure of Honduras, the one that ultimately determines constitutionality is the Supreme Court. And often, as it happens all over the world, Congress can enact laws that violate the Constitution. Um, and so there was a couple of key provisions in that law which made it unconstitutional, the primary one of which was the delegation of governmental powers to non-Honduran citizens. And, that, and that's just, you know, the government cannot delegate its powers. And in any case, non-Honduran citizens cannot serve Um, you know, in, in any meaningful capacity in that regard. So Congress went back, understood what the Supreme Court had objected to, and again, after a lot of effort, rewrote the law, addressed the specific concerns. It did keep the, you know, the, the core of it, the good parts of it, and then reenacted it through a congressional process that had a supermajority of like two, more than two-thirds, uh, so it was legal, And then the Supreme Court took it back up, reviewed it, and the Supreme Court deemed it, the Zedes, to be constitutional. Uh, so, you know, a lot of the confusion comes from a, an earlier version of something that was similar, deemed unconstitutional. But this second law addressed all those concerns and the ultimate arbiter in Honduras as to whether a law is or isn't constitutional is the Supreme Court. And it pronounced itself saying that it was constitutional. So... I think that that's, that's a bit of a misunderstanding. And, and also, you know, this type of special economic zone is new in Honduras, but it's by no means new in the world, okay? Uh, and in Honduras itself, there have been other forms of special economic zones, right? For, for decades, the so-called maquilas. This is uh, an evolution, a positive evolution of maquilas because it goes to expand the way in which this reform methodology 
creates better conditions for all involved, not just business, but for residents by ensuring that human rights are instituted and protected. Um, but beyond the already evolution within Honduras, you know, these types of special economic zones, which started more like Maquilas and have evolved to be more like Zedes with things like, like Shenzhen, for instance, have been around for over 30 years. There's over 5,000 special economic zones around the world. And the very notable examples that are the closest thing to Zedes that have been very successful. Dubai is another great example of it. So it's, it's not controversial in an aggregate sense. It's not an experiment. I, it won't work in Honduras. To some extent, must ask itself if other people around the world can flourish, why can't Hondurans flourish as well, right? Because that would be the only concern that it's worked elsewhere. The Chinese, the Singaporeans, the middle, you know, the Dubais have been able to, to live very, very well within these and, and flourish beyond their dreams. I think Hondurans has ab have absolutely the capacity to do the same. In fact, I'm, I'm convinced that they have a higher capacity for a number of reasons, and the data shows it. So I don't think it's, it's really a risky endeavor nor an experiment is, is building upon what is already proven to work elsewhere. I would just add one quick historical note there that's interesting, then I'll let Max ask you some more questions, which is actually um, Honduras had some of the first special economic zones in all of Central America. In 1976, Honduras created the, these EPZs, these export processing zones. It was the first country in the Western Hemisphere uh, that I am aware of that actually created a special economic zone. So Honduras has a lineage of being the first mover on these things and of doing them well. And, and, and Honduras, most people have a negative perception about Honduras. And part of it is well-founded. I mean, the, the, the way in which the sensationalist media plays its role certainly doesn't help. Bad news sells better than good news. However, Honduras has been a pioneer in a number of dimensions, uh, and its people are phenomenal people, both qualitatively and quantitatively. Honduras is an innovator, is a world leader, and Hondurans ought to be proud of that, not scared by it, not uh, feel it's controversial, but actually take pride on the fact that out of a bunch of things that Honduras is known for, the thing that is not that well celebrated is that it has been a global pioneer a leader, a thought leader in coming up with mechanisms that when implemented have actually yielded great results. I've actually yielded great results. So it's said that the most significant innovations often come when necessity meets opportunity or enlightenment. And so Honduras for all of its needs given poverty and you know, all those negatives actually has a very um, conducive environment for these types of innovations to be implemented. And I think that we're gonna look back as early as 10, 15, 20 years and realize that Honduras has catapulted itself from being last in the region to being the first in a number of indices that people care much about, including material wealth, but not only material wealth, I think happiness, environmental sustainability, human rights, new ideas, innovations, you know, patents per capita. I mean, I think that in the region, you know, South America, they're going to go to be amongst the top, if not the top country, uh, if we do this right. And, I, and I'm very bullish about it. Yes, come back to, to, to the questions. I would like to ask about indigenous people. Will prosper a harm? Indigenous people, will their land be stolen? 
to form a prosperity hub? Uh, absolutely not. Um, one of the organizing principles of the charter for the Zeta that we proposed to the government of Honduras uh, is very specific with regards to what land can qualify to be part of the, of the Prosper platform. One of the core conditions is that it is um, private, voluntarily acquired, okay? And where all parties affected are consenting into, into the matter. So if there are any residents, you know, even though the landowner might be happy to join the Zede, if they're actual residents, they have to be consulted and they have to agree to join. And, and you know, this isn't just a matter of the Zede charter, part of it is legally imposed, but we're very explicitly um, committed to and legally bound by now a standard of only voluntary transactions are legitimate in how we see the world. And this applies not just for indigenous people, but it applies especially with indigenous people. This applies for everything we do. We want only voluntary exchanges of value for value. That's an organizing principle, which I think it's at the, at the foundation of a civilized society, broadly speaking, because the alternative to voluntary exchanges of value for value is the use of brute force or the threat through coercion, protests or, or things of that nature. And that's just not very, you know, uh, legitimate. Um, and there was another part to your question. Sorry, could you, could you remind me, you said about indigenous rights and then um, about land, their land be stolen. Okay. No, so, so they're not going to be stolen, obviously, but with indigenous, so there's a broader sense here about indigenous people and their rights and their aspirations, which is all around the world. Um, indigenous people have tended to be pushed up to the side and uh, somehow, one way or another, compelled to accept imposed forms of governance, okay? Uh, because again, a group of people think that that's better, Dem democracy or otherwise, right? And so because of this, the traditional governance structures that indigenous people follow have kind of been trampled upon. So they have a legitimate basis to be upset because the way that their ancestors made decisions kind of become irrelevant in, in a context where a federal government or a state government says, sure, you can do your rituals, but they have no legal bearing. That's insulting, okay? Uh, we've looked at this, and what we've actually found after consulting experts is that in Honduras in particular, uh, the Zeta regime, absent Prospera, but especially the way Prospera is set up, presents probably at once in a lifetime opportunity for indigenous people to use that legal tool so as to create a governance platform that gives them the highest level of legal recognition possible and to some extent in the world based on some international experts for them to create legally that their historical and cultural ways of making decisions is not just a ritual, it's the legal way in which decisions are made. Um, and that is something that is often not, that is not at all talked about, right? Uh, Zedes are actually a godsend to indigenous people if they were to use the tool to create an indigenous people Zede. You know, in Honduras, the Garifuna people in particular have been historically most oppressed, uh, and that's, you know, a historical reality, and they are the indigenous peoples that are usually most 
uh, verbal about the injustices that they are experiencing or fear experiencing. Well, that is the community that could benefit the most, the most, because their, their cultural heritage is very unique and they have no other tool by which to actually have formal and very significant, because it's constitutionally grounded and protected by international treaty, to have a form of legal protection that protects them against the government of Honduras, as well as international investors and everybody else. So once we realized this, we incorporated into the Prospera platform, a mechanism by which, through the creation of districts within the Prospera Zede, uh, we could, if the Garifuna people wanted to, and we would be more than happy to, create a district within the Prospera framework so that they have, let's say, a starter version of a Zede with minimal friction, and that afterwards they could upgrade it to a full, completely autonomous Zede. Of course, they don't have to go through Prospera. We would just be happy to support them. They could go and pursue a Zede in their own right from the very beginning. It's not an easy process. You know, it took us three years plus, but hey, we were the first, so it was always gonna be hardest the first time. The second time will be a lot easier, but it doesn't mean it's gonna be quote unquote easy. But you know, let it be known here, not only as a general framework, I believe Zedes are a great opportunity, not a threat, a great opportunity for the indigenous peoples of Honduras and the Garifuna people in particular, but Prospera stands ready and able and very happy to, if invited, help the Garifuna people stand up their own, finally, you know, legal recognition for their rights for however their community wants to make their decisions. Now, if Prosper is to be involved, it is imperative, though, that this is done in the same spirit that I described earlier, meaning through voluntary participation of all the parties uh, involved. We wouldn't want to support a, an imposition of any structure, ours or theirs, upon people that don't want it. So as long as there's a community that does, in fact, want it, we would be front of line, ready and able to support. God, I think that that's a great statement. About How about the coral reef? Um, with Prospera Harm, the coral reef around the Bay Island? No, absolutely, absolutely not. Uh, not only is there... So, so let me back up. It makes no sense, giving our business model, for, for that to make sense for us to even allow much less to pursue it, right? I mean, the idea of pursuing destruction of the natural environment for the sake of it, it's first of all, it, you know, it ought to be dismissed. I mean, there's no framework in which that ever makes sense in our worldview. But in particular, given the business model of Prospera, where it's seeking to generate generalized prosperity, and it is doing so by attracting, you know, Honduran talent and foreign talent, um, in a place like Roatan, one of the distinguished features and something that makes it unique is precisely its coral reef. So I could tell you how much I care about it from just a appreciation of beauty, respect of nature, and I do, and, my, and our team does as well. But from a pure business sense perspective, it's like shooting the goose that lays the golden egg. It's one of those things, and, Honduras, and Roatan has many but it's one of the most distinguished features that makes Roatan an extremely special place in the world. Um, so you know, we, don't have, we have the incentive to do everything we can to protect it, and more than protect it, to, to nurture it, to, to, to nurture it, to expand it, to help its biodiversity. If there is a lamentation is that the Zeta framework is limited in some ways where 
it only applies on land. So we actually, we not, the Zede itself doesn't have any actual jurisdiction over the coral reef itself. And so the ability for it to direct the very significant international expertise and access to capital to directly contribute to the preservation and nurturing of the coral reef is currently limited by, by the way the legal framework works, which is not to say that Prospera is not doing everything possible to at a minimum prevent harm. One of the very first legal standards that the Prospera Zede adopted, it's called the Coral Reef Protection Statutes. And this is a matter of public record. If you go to the pzgps.hn website, which is the official gazette of the Prospera Zede, you will see that one of the very first legal rules that it adopted was that no activity that would hurt or could reasonably be expected to hurt the coral reef was allowed. So by default, anything that actually hurts or could reasonably hurt the coral reefs is disallowed from happening within the physical jurisdiction land, as private as it is, land within the Zede jurisdiction. So, I mean, I think actions speak louder than words. And the most important action that the Zede could have taken is, you know, to, to take a, a rule action, and it has. And then on top of it, it's in active pursuit of forming a committee amongst local and international experts on, on the subject of coral reefs. And, we, you know, the, the Zede is an active uh, work for that. And, you know, there's some work to be done, but it's the bare beginning of this endeavor. So I think not only are we not going to destroy it, we're working actively to, to nurture it because I think it's a huge and very valuable asset on all dimensions for what we're seeking to do. Um, yeah. And one of the final questions that I have for you is what about um, Charter City or how we know it in, in Honduras, Ciudades Modelo, in terms of governance? What, the thing, what do you think about this? Is what are the difference or is Prospera Ciudad Modelo? Let me first say that I don't think that there is an agreed upon definition even of what that is, right? I mean, I think that when people hear Ciudad Modelo, they have a concept of what it is, which is, is, not, is not generally agreed upon, okay? I think that what is generally meant is like a company town, right? That is imposed upon people and where people have no say. I think that's what they mean by it, right? And that moreover, it's kind of like a country within a country where no Honduran laws apply, where human rights are not respected and where the only thing that matters is kind of like the profit motive of the company that is quote unquote running the city. I think That's what people mean or at least conceptualize when they think of uh, Ciudad Modelo. And I'm speaking mostly in the Honduran context, okay? Um, I could be wrong about that, but since there's no like central definition, that's my best understanding based on the concerns that people legitimately have about Ciudad's, Ciudades Modelo, how they are understood. And so within that framework of what is understood for a Ciudad Modelo, resoundingly, we're not a Ciudad Modelo. I mean, resoundingly, we're not a Ciudad Modelo. Um, I said earlier that what we're seeking to do is create centers for prosperity, okay? And that the most basic approach for people to be prosperous is to have access to jobs that they love doing and get, you know, paid for well. 
And so what we're looking to create ultimately is a jobs market, right? A bunch of jobs that need to be filled by Hondurans primarily. And as I said earlier, it so happens that like, it's not us, the way humans everywhere in the world, including Honduras, where there is the highest concentration of jobs are physical spaces that most people describe as cities. They don't have to be cities in like a New York style or how you have it in your background trade, Dubai. You know, it's just like, it's, it's a fairly uh, urbanized space with higher density than its surroundings. But the reason is that that's how ideas flow. So is this eventually going to end up looking like a city in that regard? Again, not what Trey has in the background, but something more like, at least in the context of, of Roatan, a beautifully integrated with nature, you know, more highly uh, urbanized area so that the environmental impact is minimized, then yes, I think over time this will evolve to be something that most people identify as a city. Uh, what is being done in La Ceiba will start off as something more than what people identify as a business park, right? With, with warehouses and factories and then housing around it. Uh, whereas Roatan is more of a service hub, so they're going to be office spaces and what have you. But the modelo component of it, given the definition I think exists, could not be farther from what we're doing. And here's why in a number of dimensions. First of all, to the point of this is a country within a country and Honduran law is ignored or not followed. Absolutely not. Uh, the whole Zeller framework is Honduran law. The Honduran constitution must be respected. You know, the Zeller is a creation of the National Congress of Honduras. That's the definition of whether it's Honduran law. Um, and then to the, to the idea that because you're doing certain things differently within the physical boundaries of what is to be a Zeller, that that means that, that it's not Honduras. It's ridiculous. Uh, you know, there's multiple departments in, in Honduras and there are multiple municipalities in Honduras. And in Honduras, forget this, municipalities have a high degree of autonomy. And when you go from one municipality to the other, rules are different. Does it mean that they're not part of Honduras? Of course not. It just means that they are, they are adopting a different legal condition. What you pay in Tegucigalpa versus San Pedro versus Roatan for, you know, building permits or, or car licenses is different, right? The way that they impose all sorts of standards is different. So different does not mean that you're not part of Honduras. Therefore, just because the Zedes have the ability to be different in some dimensions doesn't automatically mean that they're not Honduras. The degree to which they're different and the ways in which they're different, moreover, has only been possible because of the Honduran constitution the National Congress, and has had to be approved through the processes that the National Congress has established, which includes an oversight committee called CAMP, made up primarily of Hondurans, where foreigners are only effectively advisors. And so, no, there's no conceptual way in which you can think of Azede as not Honduras, and assigning difference equally not Honduras, it, it, like it, it, it fails the reality test of everything that is already happening in Honduras, Zedes aside. Um, I think it would be a mistake to say that just because Honduras, through a political subdivision, which is what Azede is, is itself adopting a far better legal system that it's now not Honduras. I mean, think about it. It's like saying, just because it's a lot better than what we have, then that automatically means it's not Honduras. 
how how limited of a framework could that be on the like it, it basically says that in order for it to be honduras it has to be less advanced what makes no sense anybody making that argument should wonder what are you actually saying that if it's that much better then it cannot be honduras i profoundly reject that mental model but as a matter of technical reality it is very clearly part of honduras and it's very clearly part of the honduras legal system okay so that's one point and i think it's probably the most important point the other points probably revolve in the ciudad modelo context of is there like do residents have a say right is this imposed upon people with stolen land and and the answer there again is absolutely not first and foremost what we are doing as Prospera, again, and I can only speak to what Prospera is doing, although some things will apply by law to all Zs, okay? But this for sure applies to Prospera. What we're doing is we're starting on greenfield sites, and what that means is that they're empty and there are no residents, okay? There's no development on those sites. Therefore, by default, anybody that ends up in the Prospera developments have had to choose to be in the developments. They chose, right? Unless you are to see Zedes or Prospera kidnapping people and then by force putting them inside of the Zede, and that's never going to happen. Everybody that's inside of a Prospera hub is there by choice. It is there by choice. So from the beginning, they chose to be there. Now, uh, the Z is following all of the international best practices of transparency. It's publishing in its gazette. And moreover, which is very different than when you cross into another municipality. Let me give you a, a, an example. If you go to Tegucigalpa, automatically from San Pedro, you are required to follow the laws that the municipality of Tegucigalpa has decided. Just because you physically moved into that jurisdiction. You didn't sign a piece of paper that says, I hereby acknowledge the rules of the municipality of Tegucigalpa and accept that they are imposed upon me. No, it is a standard accepted principle, erroneously in my opinion, that just by physically being inside of that territory, you are now bound morally and legally by those rules, even though they are completely different in some regards than the rules of San Pedro. For the Zede, it could be said that if you choose to enter that separate legal jurisdiction, you are likewise accepting by default the fact that those different rules of that effectively municipality also apply to you. But the Zeta regime requires a far higher standard of ensuring that you are concurring and agreeing to those standards. And this is probably the highest standard worldwide, which is in order to legally enter, you are required, and certainly if you have the intent of, 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 of being a resident, you are required to sign, physically sign, an agreement of coexistence is called on the law. Una, un, un acuerdo de, de, de coexistencia. Um, which spells out the key things that are unique, right? Compared to say the municipality of Roatan or of Tegucigalpa or San Pedro, right? You basically have to proactively, not just show up physically, which is already enough, according to any standard in the world, you have to take a step further and you have to sign a contract that says, I understand and I consent to these rules and standards. Okay, so that's level two. Not only are you physically choosing to be there, but if you're going to do this legally, you have to sign a contract that says you consent. Now, if you do that illegally, 
you're not only violating the Honduran law, you're also violating private property because all of this is being done so far in private property. But as if that were not enough, okay? As if that were not enough. The third layer as to why it's not the case that what we're doing is an imposition is that residents have the ability to elect representatives as if they were in a municipality that sit on the decision-making body, the senior most decision-making body within the special jurisdiction that is called a Zeve and operates very similar to a municipality, okay? Now, it is unique and slightly different that if you, if you were to equate a Zeve like a municipality and the constitution says they are very similar, in a municipality, you have the municipal corporation with a board, right? The, you know, the council, if you will. And, uh, and those are all elected. In a Zede, in the Prospera Zede, okay? Because this is, this is, in fact, an innovation that Prospera brought to the table, which is not explicit in the law. And it is a huge upgrade in compliance with international treaties that indicate that a best practice of governance is to have representation of those that are being governed, okay? So Prospera created in, you know, in partnership with the Honduran government and again, following all the procedures for it to be legal, a requirement that is not just one individual that by the law is called the technical secretary, that there is a whole board, a municipal corporation equivalent council, the majority of which effectively get elected by the residents. So not only do residents have to physically take action to be inside, not only do they sign a contract, but then they get to elect representatives that sit on the decision-making body, which is called the Zedic Council, the Prosperous Zedic Council, to continuously look out for their interests. So they entered, they agreed, and then they have standing representation. So for all those reasons, as if it, you know, I think it is a resounding misunderstanding or malicious intent to, to, to create an unreality that Prosperous Zedic is a Ciudad Modelo as it's understood in Honduras, which is largely negative. I think it's quite the contrary. It's an example of how governments should work, which is by clear and express consent of the governed, all right? That's not the way most governments work. You are just assumed to have a social contract that you're somehow bound to, even though it's nowhere really spelled out and certainly you didn't sign on to it. Um, I would say something further, which I would perhaps characterize as a number four, although really is a derivative of the way in which the Prospera Council is set up, but it's its own thing. Um, within the Prospera Zede, residents, aside from council action, have the ability to unilaterally veto any decision, any decision that the Zede Council comes up with. Automatically, it has to be a majority of the residents, but anything the council comes up with, and remember the majority of the council is already elected by the residents, but we know that elected officials are not immune from corruption and are not immune from making bad decisions, even if they're not corrupt. So if the council makes a decision or imposes a law that the majority of the population doesn't like or doesn't want, it is the supreme, the sovereign, if you will, decision maker by virtue of having the power to veto any decision the council makes. You don't have that in the rest of Honduras. It's not easy for the rest of Honduras in part because it's much larger and complex 
for the residents to say, you know what, we don't like this criminal code that the national government just imposed. And you would know this, Max, it's, it's very controversial to a number of people in the community. All they're given is the consultation. And it's kind of like whether you like it or not, if the, if the National Congress decides, then it is now henceforth, henceforth imposed. And what has been controversial about the criminal code, of course, is that many people allege that uh, Congress is kind of passing a law to protect itself through immunity from acts of corruption. Well, in the Zealot, that would likely not, not fly because the residents would say, oh, no, you're not going to pass an immunity rule that exempts you from best practices. So actually, you know, the first three things are powerful enough. This fourth thing, I think, seals the deal beyond any questions that within the Zeta framework that Prosper has created, this is by far world-class and more pro-residents, more pro-human rights, more pro-representation of the people than anything else that's in Honduras. And I, and I venture to say out in the world. Thanks so much for that answer, Eric. That was uh, very thorough, and I think it covered most of the points. However, one of the original concerns with the uh, Ciudad Modelo's concept back when Paul Romer was involved, way back in like 2009, 2010, was about foreign government interference in Honduran national affairs or, or foreign interference generally um, in Honduran sovereignty. Um, how do you think that, if at all, that applies to Prospera? And what do you, what do you say to that allegation as it relates to ZEDES generally? Yes, um, I would say it's a legitimate concern, and, and it is true that on the original Charter Cities concept that Paul Romer eloquently presented in a TED Talk, I believe 2009, um, unfortunately, in retrospect, his formula was about a country adopting the laws of another country within a specific geographic location and effectively delegating the management of that territory to a foreign government, okay? And obviously that sounded and felt very much like colonialism to a lot of people. Uh, knowing what Paul Romer stands for and his lifelong fight for advancing human prosperity, I, I know that that's not what he actually intended, okay? It was more about being uh, an expedited way to get there. I mean, like there are some countries that have legal systems that seem to work better under certain conditions. So if you wanted to very quote unquote quickly adopt already existing proven rules and effectively hire a proven management team, then one way to do it is to just adopt the rules of a particular country and ask that particular country to manage the city. It wasn't done to promote colonialism. It was just done to get there faster. But obviously that has a number of flaws associated with it, not the least of which the optics are horrible and people don't want to be governed by a foreign government. They have their own government. And, uh, and so what we have done and what Honduras realized, especially in its second iteration or the new Zeta law is that it's not adopting a foreign government's rules, much less delegating uh, government to another country. Um, it's, it's developed its own Honduras, right? And, and Prospera played a role at advising and recommending and helping research international best practices. But it was the government of Honduras, through enabling legislation and, and then the enacted procedures, it was Honduras that adopted a Honduran version of international common law. 
the, the common law that the Prospera Zede has adopted is a Honduran version of international common law. And that's very important. And Paul Romer was correct. It would have been a lot easier to just copy existing you know, laws. Uh, but it failed at a political and you know, PR and whatever dimension. And that's part of the reason why it took us and the government of Honduras three years, three years and eight digits worth of investment, okay, to create a effectively new legal system that is Honduran, although it builds upon international best practices. So, um, yes, I mean, that's a key distinction between this charter city concept and what Honduras has elected to do and what we, in partnership with the people of Honduras, have enabled to see happen. There's a Honduran version of international common law, which is at the back end what underpins the Prospera Zede. Other Zedes could very easily choose to adopt this, you know, Honduran version of international common law, which for the Prospera Zede has been called the Roatan Common Law Code, right? Because Roatan is Honduran in the end. So another Zede could easily adopt that and save themselves a lot of trouble while benefiting from the best of what the world has to offer and what the best minds of the Honduran government have to offer. And that's already there off the shelf. There's no fee for it. They can just adopt it. It's open source and it, and it leverages the ULEX system that Professor Tom W. Bell created as a starting level. And then it powerfully builds upon it uh, in collaboration with the Honduran government. Awesome. Thanks so much, Eric. That, uh, I think you really hit the uh, hard points there. So moving on from the, the harder questions, I'm going to toss you a few more softballs really quickly and then we'll be done. Um, first, what do you think in your mind will have to be true in, let's say, 30 years, in 2050, for you to have considered Prospera and this entire project as having been completely and entirely successful? Well, um, if all we ever do after 30 years of focused effort is create one small center of prosperity that enables thousands, let's say minimally 100,000 people to live a fulfilled life with material, spiritual, physical, environmental, etc., health, and prosperity, and that we were able to demonstrate on a small scale that there is a way, there is a new way, the so-called socioeconomic development enterprise as a business model, to deliver to people who want it a higher level of quality in the provision of essential services generally associated with governance for people to flourish as people and civilized society and that unquestionably those people are far better off than they otherwise would have been and that it's a win for all involved. If all we do is do that in one location with a relatively small population, I think we would have unquestionably altered a paradigm. It would have pierced through a limiting paradigm which holds back the world which says that the only way to provide these core services is in a very specific way, which is a heck of a lot better than was before with feudalism and what have you, but that it's 
far limited compared to what we can do and what Prosper is seeking to pioneer around and demonstrates it can be done a hell of a lot better. If that's all we do, I know we would have succeeded beyond our capacity to imagine because this has been true of other seemingly insignificant episodes in history in which limiting paradigms have been limited, uh, pierced, whether it was the Battle of Trenton in the American Revolution or the first flight of the Wright brothers in Kitty Hawk. Okay. Um, there have been moments in time when things that seemed to be insignificant changed everything henceforth. And I believe that if nothing else, that's what we will achieve. And we are well on our way to get there. However, I believe that that's like the bare minimum, which is almost assured to happen because we as a team are so committed to this, the world so desperately needs it. And all of the conditions are so perfectly aligned where it's almost inevitable. And in reality, nothing is in, in, in history, right? I mean, it takes sometimes few people, but it does take a dedicated focused effort by at least some few people, but it is almost assured to happen. And candidly, if it doesn't happen in Honduras, it will happen somewhere else. That I know for sure. However, I'm convinced that so much more is possible, so much more than we can imagine. I believe that within the next five to 10 years, a minimum of five new prosperity hubs will be started somewhere in the world. I believe that at least two or three will happen in Honduras. And I aspire to see at least one or two get initiated somewhere else in the world, likely in the Caribbean and Central America, just because there's a geographic proximity and there's a lot of reasons as to why geographic proximity across you know, similar hubs will benefit. And uh, regardless of whether that's true or not in the next five to 10 years, within 30 years, I'm pretty confident that at least 10, if not 50 of these hubs will emerge throughout the world. And it's not necessarily done by Prospera. I think that once the model is proven, uh, given the business model where there is a profit motive to get this done and get it done right, that this is going to very likely become replicated and copied by other groups. And it will be flattering, but most importantly, it's the most powerful way for this to reach the highest number of people around the world. Okay. And so whether it's Prosper or other groups, and I hope it's a group of other groups, this will be replicated throughout the world. And it's very reasonable to expect that at least 50 of these will be in existence throughout the world in the next 50 years. And I think that I'm significantly underestimating this because given the rule of exponential growth, and the, and, and the degree to which the current system is so deeply broken and the amount of untapped potential in people around the world, Honduras being a prime example, that's just waiting to be unleashed. Just like, you know, people desperately need and want a space in which they can be themselves, pursue their dreams, achieve for their own self, not because they have a grant or they get an aid, or because they fight through oppression or coercion to get things they want. No, that's not what people want. What people really want is an opportunity to flourish, okay? They need it and they want it. It's part of what it is to be humans. Since there's such a pent up demand for it, I think it's just like, you know, there's a, there's a, a wall of retention and a massive dam of untapped potential that is the water behind it. And what's happening is that it's cracking. Everybody sees it. Everybody knows it. 
Everybody knows the systems around the world are starting to fail. Not many people can put words to it, but everybody feels it. You see it in the United States, whether it's Black Lives Matter or any other form of similar disgruntled manifestation, the system is cracking, okay? And Prospera is that moment when water starts to pierce through, okay? It actually pierces through and everybody realizes that there's another way. And just as it happens with dams that are about to break, you got a little bit starting to pierce through and you don't know how long it'll take for the next part to crack, but sure as hell it's coming. And, when, and then that starts to grow exponentially and the whole thing falls and tumbles. And I don't think that what will happen is as drastic as that. I don't think that, you know, the current world order will tumble and, you know, governments as we know them will cease to exist. I don't think it's that dramatic. I think that what will happen is that governments will realize that there's a far better way for them to do what they're there to do, which is to provide prosperity for their people. And the paradigm of working through public-private partnerships that has worked very well in, in the realm of building infrastructure, for example, can be adopted in the realm of providing services, which are essential for people to prosper. And I think inside of that is not a disruption, it's actually a rapid evolution. It's an evolution that we are proud to contextualize as such, right? And this is part of what you asked me in the very beginning. What is it about us that I think is unique and has enabled us to make so much progress? even though much is more to do, is we're looking for win-all partnerships, okay? To make the world as it exists become better. Uh, innovating where it needs to be innovated, but not by destroying, creating. And I think that the way you do that in the world as it exists is by creating a new way of a public-private partnership that brings the best of everything that we know, everything that we know together. Public sector, private sector, individuals, corporations, entrepreneurs, employees, the environment, human rights, all of it together, right? In a new form of what it is to be prosperous and what we call prosperity hubs. Thank you, Eric. Um, I look forward to the day when I can, well, you and I can um, sit on the beach drinking pina coladas while our children run around <laughs> in this hub of prosperity and know that we've made it. So that's very inspiring for me. Um, all right. One final question for you, and then we'll break, Eric. Um, and I will shamelessly admit, I stole this straight from Tim Ferriss's podcast, but I think it... Be, be, before you go there, uh, Trey, um, I know you meant this in the best of ways, and this is not a thing on you at all. Uh, often people use the analogy of, I look forward to a day when I'm on the beach drinking pina colada. And that is obviously, an, it implies a certain degree of success. I look forward to the day when... There's so much innovation and new venture creation happening by Honduras, in Honduras, where I would love and aspire to work for a Honduran building something amazing, okay, that they are pursuing given their aspirations in their country, given the enabling conditions that Prospera and the government of Honduras and the people of Honduras have made possible that would not have otherwise been possible because those individuals would have likely left the country or if they would have stayed, they would have never been able to reach anything close to their potential. That's the day I look forward to when I say, gee, I, I, you know what, if I wasn't doing Prospera, I would want to work for this Honduran that is native and is doing it in his country. That is what to me 
looks like to know that what we're seeking to do has been done for what it's worth. I love it. Thank you so much for that. And one final question. Um, I will shamelessly admit I stole this straight from Tim Ferriss's podcast because I think it usually gets good answers from perceptive people like yourself. <laughs> if you could put anything on a billboard anywhere in the world for a day that everyone had to see, what would it be? Could be an image, words, whatever. What would it be? I'll say some comments around it and then I'll try to synthesize it on the few words that I think I would put in the billboard. Got it. The general message I would want the billboard to communicate for anybody that sees it is that that burning sensation inside of you of the potential you believe you have is real. You can achieve it. It is possible. The reasons why you might not be able to do it are likely mostly artificial obstacles. Don't give up. Go for it. You can do it. In Prospera, we're all about creating the conditions for you to reach your dreams and fulfill your God-given potential. So I don't know how you capture that on the billboard, but that is the message that has to be heard because the tragedy of our time is not the poverty that is visible, although that is tragic. It is the potential that is not realized because of artificial barriers that are often imposed with the best of intentions, but that have tragic implications. And that lack of prosperity, which we don't perceive as tangibly as the poor child that is dying of hunger, is more tragic because not only would it solve the issue of poverty, it would create a world that we can hardly imagine possible in our time on this planet. We don't have to go to Mars for it. So I guess the billboard would say something along the lines of, yes, you can come to Prospera, flourish beyond your dreams. Perfect. I love it. That's well, thank you so much for your time today, Eric. And um, that's all we have for you. Um, we really appreciate you coming on the show today. And thank you so much for all that you're doing. And that's it for today. I am Trey Goff. I'm Max Medina. And this is the Epicenter Podcast. Going, but rather building. <laughs>